This episode of the AD History Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you, contributing through the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Learn more about how you can support the show by visiting patreon.com slash adhistorypodcast and the exclusive benefits that await your generous support. Join us in the effort to keep creating the AD history you deserve by visiting patreon.com slash adhistorypodcast. Thank you. Have you ever wondered how China re-emerged as a single dynasty after the chaotic Three Kingdoms? Or how exactly Constantine became a Christian and dragged the empire with him? Well, have we got a story for you. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo, and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Patrick, this is going to be a really interesting episode, because once, now for the first time in quite a while, we're venturing back out into Asia, and we're also discussing a major moment, not just in ancient history, history of Europe, history of Rome, but truly the history of the world as we understand it today. And I'm very excited. How are you? I am good, Paul. Yes, I'm excited too. We've got some really interesting stuff lined up in today's episode. As you mentioned, I am going to be delving back into Asia, into my favorite place in the world, good old China. China's gone through an awful lot since during the crisis of the first century. While that's happening in Europe, China was doing its own thing. And I'm going to try and bring all you guys up to speed. But however, there was something specifically in this decade as well. Something big happened in China in this decade as well. And yeah, Paul, what you're going to cover is humongous. The world would not be the same. It wouldn't be the world we're living in right now if it weren't for what you're about to talk about. Well, about to talk about, I think I'm going to be taking things first this time around, Paul. Am I correct in saying that? It is. But to give a little teaser for the last segment where I'm going to be, sharing my topic for the day is a very interesting and extremely important, but in some ways very difficult understand to event, which is Constantine's experience before and during the Battle of Milvian Bridge, which was his Damascene moment that is so often credited to him in regards to his move towards Christianity. But we'll, we'll get into that in a more detail when we get to that segment. But needless to say, we're spreading out today and it's a nice change of pace. I felt a little out of my element, us both being in Rome for so long, but I'm really glad that you ventured out to East Asia. I'm really happy to be here again. I spent a lot of time in China with the end of the Han Dynasty and the start of the Three Kingdoms. So I've grown quite attached to China, strange enough. It's something not strange enough. It's very worthwhile. It's a fantastic history. So I'm really looking forward to carrying on that journey in China for sure. Absolutely. And with all that in mind and all of it out of the way, let's lay down our necessary, obligatory, now legendary AD History Podcast Ground Rules. One, evaluate events in the context they occurred. Two, over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. 
3. Nothing in history was inevitable. And 4. History and the past is like a different country. Mr. Foot, Sir Patrick, you have the floor. Thank you, Paul. And I want to talk to you today about what I like to dub the rebirth of the Jin dynasty. And that might sound strange, rebirth. We don't know its initial birth. And no, that's true. We haven't discussed the initial birth of the Jin dynasty. So I'm going to have to bring you up to speed with that as well. And while it was a blast diving into the crisis of the first century, it meant we had to avert our attention from other parts of the world. And of course, regular listeners, as I mentioned, well, no, I always love paying a visit to my good friends over in China. And so last time we peered into Chinese history, uh, the Three Kingdoms period was just about to begin. We said goodbye to the Han Dynasty, hello to the Three Kingdoms. And that was mid last century, gosh, maybe even the century before. Suffice to say, a lot has changed since then. And it was in this decade, however, that China would face yet another massive change. And that's when the ruling Western Jin, the Jin Dynasty, it's become retroactively known as the Western Jin Dynasty at the time, would have just been the Jin Dynasty, would have collapsed and it became the Eastern Jin Dynasty that would take its place. But to understand how China got to this point in this decade, we have to understand what happened prior in the land. So let's talk about the Three Kingdoms. That's where we left things off. It certainly is. Yeah, and... I kind of feel back. I haven't really talked about the inner workings of the Three Kingdoms. I'm kind of, I left you guys at the start of the Three Kingdoms and we're picking up things with the fall of the Three Kingdoms, I'm afraid. If you want to know what happened in the actual Three Kingdom period itself, there's many good books, including The Romance of the Three Kingdoms, which is just the definitive tale of what happened in the Three Kingdoms period, told from a Chinese perspective. It's a book I need to read myself. Or you could play the Dynasty Warriors games. They're all about the Three Kingdoms. <laughs> There's a lot of content out there about the Three Kingdoms. So we're just going to look at the bookings of these Three Kingdoms. And it was basically a part of Chinese history full of a lot of battles, these kingdoms battling with one another. And so just to remind you of who the Three Kingdoms were, we had the Wei Kingdom in the north, the Wei Kingdom, what to say, W-E-I, they were in the north, the Shu Kingdom in the west, and the Wu Kingdom in the east. And of these three kingdoms, it was Shu in the west that were the first to fall. And they were claimed by the Wei Kingdom in 263 AD. Though the Wei Kingdom, however, would only last around three more years. And Wei's demise would come to the end thanks to someone called Sima Yan. And he was a part of the Sima clan, a family who had high influence in the Wei Kingdom. Now, something I'm curious about, and maybe you can briefly refresh my memory, mm. of these three kingdoms that have become so well known, wasn't the Wei Kingdom generally considered the gold standard between the three? Yeah, so the Wei Kingdom was Cao Cao's, or I more don't or less that, is his thing. Yeah, right? it, it was his thing. He 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 founded it. I think he pretty much founded it and died at the same time. Is what the general rule is. He <laughs> so it was actually known as Cao Wei. So it was his son. I think was the first true emperor of the Wei Kingdom. But you will see the Wei Kingdom was the dominant one. That was the most dominant of the three, and it was the one to first engulf another kingdom. Interesting little just thought here, but much like Moses before him, Cao Cao, despite all he did and the role he played, would never be allowed to enter Canaan himself. <laughs> Quite right, just yeah. Just a thought. Wei, so even though Wei did take on the Shu Kingdom, Wei actually would only last for about three more years or so. And Wei's demise would come to an end, in fact, some called it Sima Yan, and he was a part of the Sima clan, and they were a family who held high influence in the Wei Kingdom. 
in 266 AD, he was able to persuade the then emperor of Wei to abdicate. How exactly this happened, Paul, if you're going to ask, I'm not sure. I couldn't find specifics on this. I think the Wei Kingdom was just in a bit of a bit of a downhill spiral themselves, as all these places are, so he could just fill over quickly. I think it was quite a young emperor, but not child, but 20s or so. Basically, he was the most powerful hand on the scene during an extremely destabilizing moment, I'd imagine. Yeah, the, 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 you could say that probably for most instances, not just in Chinese history, but being a powerful hand at a bad, basically good place, right place, right time. So when Simeon took over, he promptly declared the Wei regime over. And from here, Simeon would take over the title, he would take over as emperor and use the name Emperor Wu. And he dubbed his new dynasty the Jin dynasty. And why he called it the Jin dynasty, why he called himself Emperor Wu, why he was Simeon, I don't know. All different names, similar things. Where Jin came from, I couldn't tell. I did some research. But the Shu kingdom and the Wei kingdom had merged to become the Jin dynasty. And that just left one of the original three kingdoms left. That was the Wu kingdom. However, uh, the Jin dynasty would take over the Wu kingdom pretty easily in 280 AD. And this brought the Three Kingdoms period to a complete end. And it lasted from 220 AD to 280 AD. So 60 years of Chinese history was the Three Kingdoms. 60 years I've tried, I've more or less ignored. But like I said, there's lots out there about what actually happened in the Three Kingdoms. Trust me, there's there's an awful lot out there. It is a very heavily studied period, to be sure, because it is so interesting, this interim period of schism that Mm. ultimately turns into another unified dynasty it was the word i would use for it is dense like it wasn't it was only 60 years which is nothing in the grand scheme of time this is true but a lot happened and it was just a very romanticized it literally the book the, the most definitive book on the period is called the romance of the three kingdoms it's a very romance idea you know, these three weight three factions waging war it, it it does lend itself to be in to be to inspire video games and movies and the likes who wrote it and when? So it was written by someone called Lu Guazong. Lu Guazong. Lao Guazong. My Chinese pronunciation is spotless as ever. <laughs> uh, it, it, so it's actually, it, it's written in the 14th century. We don't seem to have an exact date. And it's, it's something dubbed a historical novel. However, it's heavily inspired by the actual records. And the record of the Three Kingdoms was written in about the 3rd century. So that was more... Uh, continuous with the Three Kingdoms itself, but this romancing of the Three Kingdoms, contemporaneous, Three Kingdoms, contemporaneous. This romance uh, of the Three Kingdoms was in the 14th century, so a lot further down the line. But it's it's just become oh. like the de facto sort of version of it. It's a very popular book. I, I must admit, I've been talking about it myself. I haven't read the full thing myself. It's 800,000 characters long, according to Wikipedia. Uh, it has apparently a thousand characters in it and 120 chapters. There are condensed versions. I'll read some sort of more digestible version of it at some point because it, it's something really fascinating. So you said it was written around 1400, right? Yeah, it's written in the 14th century. Okay, so almost a thousand years later. Exactly. Yes, yeah, so quite a bit, quite a bit uh, afterwards. So it had time to become more of a legend, be romanticized. I'd be, I'd be curious uh, at some point to look more into the scholarship and and study of how that book was written and the sources that they were using. Because mm. as popular as it is, I'm curious how it stands up as a, as a truly, uh, definitively an accurate 
representation of the time. You know how these how these books are, especially when you're talking about stuff that's writing, being written a millennia later. So I'd be very yeah. curious to see that at some point. Yes, people in the past writing about things that are even further in the past from our perspective. So oh, yeah. it, it's definitely fascinating. But yeah, so that's anyone who does want to know more about The Three Kingdoms, go read that book and go tell me how it ends. Well, I know how it ends, obviously, but go, go, tell, go tell me what it's like. What's the best version to read for it? For an English speaker, but The Three Kingdoms are gone with now. By three kingdoms, we hardly knew ye. Hmm. We move on to the Jin Dynasty, or as it's now known as the Western Jin Dynasty, and this gives us a unified China. This was, and this was, of course, the first time in a while that we had a unified China. In obviously, the three kingdoms were sixty years, but if you remember correctly, Paul, that way before the three kingdoms were formalized, China was split into even more kingdoms, even more mad areas. This is a long, this is the first time in a while we had a unified China. You know, the interesting thing about China, and we've kind of discussed this a bit in prior episodes, but it's been quite a while now. And the story of China, at least as I understand it, I could be wrong, but especially in terms of the way that modern Chinese, especially Han Chinese, look at their history, is that given that it's so ancient, and it spread so long. It's never a matter of a history of a, of a country or a dynasty. It's, it's a history of a sweep of civilization that in many ways, and we'll see this many times in our show, it'll bear out undeniably, is that it comes together, is ruled in a unified fashion for a decent amount of time breaks down, and then it builds all up again. And I think it's really fascinating that we've come far enough in our show now that we've actually seen this process take place right in front of our eyes. Yeah, that that's exactly what's happened here, Paul. You're quite right. Broken up, back together, broken up, back together. Kind of like kind of like a sitcom couple, I guess, you could, could, could compare China to. A bad sitcom, <laughs> but I, I, I think we could be more complimentary to China. But <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, you, you make... You make if I, well, more like a soap opera, even. Yes, a soap opera, yes. Considering, yeah, all, them, considering all the death. Yes, exactly. I was going to call them histories, Ross and Rachel, but oh, maybe, yeah, a soap oh, opera is a bit more oh. comparable. <laughs> but no, anyway, we're back with a unified China now, and they were they were unified under Emperor Wu of Jin. And the Jin dynasty is seen as officially coming into being in 266 AD. And while China may be unified now, they're definitely not out of the woods. And pardon my French, Paul, an awful lot of shit is about to be sent their way to for them to deal with. Pardon your French, the word is merde. Merde. <laughs> my bad. My bad. Merde, you're, an awful lot of merde. You're the one who's going. Yes, yes, that's very true. Soon enough, fingers crossed, if, if the pandemic keeps calm. And so... As said, a lot of mid was about to come their way, and this <laughs> this led to this version of the Jin Dynasty coming to an end in 316 AD, which luckily enough lines up with this episode of the podcast. And as I said, this initial incarnation of the Jin Dynasty is now known as the Western Jin Dynasty, and this was in 266 AD. So what exactly happened to this Western Jin Dynasty that led, led to its demise after just 50 years? And there were lots of factors, basically, but I'm going to focus on three key events that ended this kingdom. And this was the War of the Eight Princes the invasion of the five barbarians. And this, in turn, uh, led to the formation of something known as the 16 kingdoms. And uh, that, that they're kind of one the same. But the third thing is the fall of Shang'an. And let's look into these, shall we? And before you, I know what you're thinking. Yeah, China really loved the, the historical events involving a certain number of things. We had the three kingdoms, the 16 kingdoms, the eight princes. It, it, it seems to be a reoccurring thing in Chinese history. They like to have these sort of events defined by a certain amount, by involving a number of some sort. And 
just fascinating. It's so theatrical. It's it's it is, it's yeah. incredible. I love it. It is really theatrical, and that's that goes back to the Three Kingdoms. It was a very theatrical time in Chinese history. At least has become a very theatrical time. Just it's, it's a very pretty idea to have these sort of three kingdoms fighting one another. And it just all adds into that. But now we've got eight princes fighting one another. And this war of the eight princes lasted from 291 to 306. And as mentioned, Sima Young slash Emperor Wu, uh, Jin's first emperor, he died in 290 AD. And he was followed by his son, Sima Yong. And he was known as Emperor Hu of Jin. Hu, however, was not as great a ruler as his father. And he was incredibly disabled. Um, we're not sure exactly in which way, but this very effect, very much affected him, uh, this disability very much affected him and how he could rule. And of course, a weak leader like this leads to a power vacuum. You know, it's funny because you and I have run into a number of times now, whether it be China, whether it be Rome or anywhere else and in between where we run into a number of leaders who, because they are physically weakened, make it that they're politically weakened. Something that I find really fascinating, I know this is something you can appreciate, is that quite a few of humanity's most brutal and infamous rulers were physically infirm. You know, look at Tamerlane or Tamer the Lame. Mm. Or look at Joseph Stalin, who had a ton of physical handicaps. I mean, I think it's it's interesting how it can run the gamut there. Yeah, I mean, even FDR came to mind as well, but he oh, very so he, he, he didn't his... kill millions of people. <laughs> no, no, he didn't. No, no, yeah, he didn't kill millions of people, but it's about yeah. world leaders. Oh, FDR sure. himself, was it polio FDR had? It's believed to be polio or something yeah. extremely similar to it. But generally, that's the idea. Yeah. And it just shows that like it's kind of good enough way that this isn't always have to be the case. You can be disabled and still be a ruler for better or for worse, I suppose. And be a real bastard sometimes, too. And be an absolute bastard, of course. So uh, this vacuum led to, surprisingly, eight members of nobility duking out over who should rule. Same thing, it's called the Eight Princes. They weren't all quite princes. And these eight princes, we'll call them princes now, were all relatives of Emperor Wu and Hai. But they were also, a couple of them were other members of the Sima clan. And I'm not going to go into the nitty gritty of this, but I'll just give you a sense of who these eight were. So we had Sima Yong, who was the grand uncle of Emperor Wu. He had Sima Xiong, the cousin of Emperor Hu. Sima Yi, the cousin of another cousin of Emperor Wu. Then Sima Ai, who was a son of Emperor Wu. Sima Ying, who was also a son of Emperor Wu, so they would have been Emperor Hu's uh, brothers, I believe. Sima Wei was a son of Wu, so that's uh, the current emperor's uh, son. I guess is the one who most likely has the right to rule. Then we also had Sima Yang and Sima Liang, and they were the sons of Sima Yi. And Sima Yi was another another member of that famous Sima clan. So if you have virgin ears for this one, make sure to cover them up. But uh, I, I, I can't help but make the crack. Talk about redefining the term keeping it in the family yeah definitely keeping it in the family no and i just i i just had to read out all their names because it just sounds so ridiculous that you got a granduncle a cousin a son another son another son sons of someone else it's just... i mean god th th this is truly soap opera territory Exactly. It just highlights that even though China was unified once again, they weren't, it wasn't a solid unification by any means. This was still barely holding together this first incarnation of the Jin dynasty. And this title of the War of the Eight Princes is misleading for another way. Not only were they not princes, it gives off the impression that it was just these eight princes were battling over, battling all together, all at the same time. And that really wasn't the case. It would have been every now and then in this period of time, two or so of these princes would have butted heads and clashed over power. And for, for periods of time, all eight of these princes were actually in power, or at least 
really running, p- pulling the strings. Not so much actually emperors, but they would have been pulling the strings to some extent. And this infighting would seriously damage this, the stability of the Jin dynasty. And it made the dynasty easier to attack from outsiders, which unsurprisingly is what happened next. And that was with the invasion of the five barbarians. And this lasted from 304 AD to 316 AD. Who are these barbarians? I can get onto them in a moment, Paul. They were basically non-Han Chinese members. So do you know where the term barbarian comes from? You know what? Because I don't, I could not be in better company to find out. <laughs> so barbarian basically means barbar people. You could call anyone who spoke a language not yours. Barbarian comes with this idea that it was people who spoke a barbaric language, a language that sounded like bar 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 to outsiders. So I think it's a Greek or Latin term, and they would have used it for Germanic, like Germanic barbarians, because two Latin, Germanic languages, two Latin speakers sound more blah, 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 blah. Uh, so that's where the term comes from. So these barbarians were, they would have sounded like blah, blah, blah to Chinese speakers. So it was actually five um, non-Hun Chinese groups with these five barbarians. Interesting. I'm, I'm curious, in terms, you know, you mentioned these proto-Germanic languages, not mm. to jump back into Europe here, but have you ever heard a, a potential example of what that sounded like? I haven't, I'm afraid. I know there are people out there who do reconstruct ancient languages and they're, yeah. it's very impressive, but mm-hmm. I haven't actually listened to any of them myself. But I imagine they, they probably sound somewhat different to modern German or modern Dutch or even modern English. Oh, I, I would absolutely imagine so, given all the time and influences. No, the reason I ask is I figured perhaps you had come across it at some point in your travels and name explain just doing the research that you do. No, I haven't done yet, but I'm sure it's only a matter of time. But I have got the names of these five non-Hun groups. And also, as you explain what non-Hun is, uh, Hun Chinese, I think we've talked about this before, Paul, and you know this very well, Hun Chinese is the main ethnic group of China to this day. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, you, you, you know this, I know. Yeah, I believe today mm. the uh, Chinese Communist Party, the central government in Beijing, uh, formally, officially recognizes something like 53 different ethnicities within its borders, but the Han Chinese are obviously the one that are the most numerous and obviously the most uh, politically powerful, to be sure. Yeah, so when you hear Han Chinese, it, it means you're 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 most likely, if you think of a Chinese person, they're most likely Han Chinese. Yeah. Uh, but that, of course, there are many, even within the Chinese border, these guys uh, weren't actually in the Chinese border as, as China was at that time. Uh, and they were the Xiongyu, the Ji, the Xiangbi, the Ding, and the Xiang. I think I pronounced all those right. Once Very again, catchy but, names. Yeah, there's, there's lots of fun names in this episode. And it's actually believed that there were more than five groups who descended into China, and they descended into northern China. But these are the five we know. And th- this coincided with the War of the Eight Princes. So the, the Han Dynasty, the Jin Dynasty, was way too busy fighting within itself. It, had no pos- it was not in a position to defend itself properly. And something known as the Wuhu Uprising in the Jin military, uh, saw the Jin military destroyed, and these barbarians just descended upon northern China. And the Jin dynasty eventually lost northern China to these barbarians. And this area of northern China became volatile, being known as the 16 kingdoms period. These 16 kingdoms were highly volatile. And unlike the three kingdoms, however, not all 16 happened at the same time. So the 16 kingdoms period lasted from 304 AD all the way up until 439 AD. Which is, yeah, that goes way beyond this season of AD history. We probably won't cover it more, but it was just to get you a sense. 
Northern China was just a war zone at this moment. Different kingdoms, all in all, 16 different kingdoms came and went just in this uh, period of Northern China. It was bonkers. We thought three kingdoms were mad. Well, yeah, absolutely. And you can kind of understand why they would be fighting over Northern China so much. Uh, something that we discussed some way back. Sometimes we have to be a bit self-referential because mm. either somebody, is, you know, we have a listener that's listening to us for the first time or... It's been such a long while since somebody heard these episodes. One mm. of the reasons, especially in ancient China, that that what we call northern China in this case is so valuable is because of its economic benefit, because so many of these major trading routes of the Silk Roads are going right through this area. That's one of the reasons why, if you go back and you look at the Han Dynasty, for example, that they were always so keen in establishing control over the Tarim Basin. That kind of falls in an area that we call today Xinjiang. So it makes sense that they're fighting over it, and they never really stop fighting over it for a very long time. Yeah, this is a very important part of China for these guys. So to lose it to barbarians, that's not, well, it wasn't ideal, but it just showed you what a weakened state the Jin Dynasty was, what China was at this point. And it all kind of accumulated with the fall of Chang'an. And this was in 316 AD. And this was really the final nail in the Western Jin Dynasty's coffin. Xi'an is the ancient name of the modern city of Xi'an. And it's one of China's oldest cities. And it was also the Jin Dynasty's capital for a spell. Yeah, it was actually one of the ancient capitals, one of the general two, as I recall, that the Han Dynasty claimed as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It, it, it's a very important city. It's still, obviously, you can still be visited. It's vastly different now, but it's played an instrumental role in China's history, which is always, I find that so interesting with China because I'm sure when me and you think Chinese city, we think Beijing, but it's, I, I can't even remember when Beijing actually became the capital. It's had many, many other capitals prior to Beijing uh, becoming a thing. And that's interesting because obviously you think of a capital naturally with any country. That makes total sense. But you look at modern China and you realize how many just ridiculous metropolises that have so mm -hmm. many millions of people that rival in population cities like London or mm -hmm. New York City and that most of them in the West have never even heard of. There's a city in China with its own Eiffel Tower. Do you know about this? I've, I've seen pictures, you know, over the last 20 years, there have been kind of a variety of these kind of landmarks that have been built in modern China. Some of them have hung around. Some of them haven't. Some of them have had a very short life. I think there was this one super large gold statue of Mao where he was kind of like in the sitting position. And as soon as they opened it, apparently they were told that they had to get rid of it. It's it's an interesting thing that they do, but I know exactly what you're talking about. I've seen the pictures. Mm. It, so, like you said, it makes all the sense. It's such a large population. The world's the largest population that they're going to have a lot of massive cities. And some that just fly completely under the radar. Imagine if there was a city full of millions and millions of people in the UK or the US and no one had heard of it. That's what's going on in China right now. And it's just, it's fascinating. It's definitely a country I really do want to visit and dive into more. And I'm always fortunate that AD history gives me this chance to talk more about China. You know, just a little, just funny that you make that particular crack. Most people don't realize that Houston, Texas is actually the fourth most populous city in the United States. Hmm. Obviously, most people have heard of Houston, but talk about an extremely large metropolis that people don't give the proper mind to in regards to how many people actually live there. No, if you told me to name like massive cities of the US, I'd be like, got New York, LA, San Diego, like... Oh, San Diego's not big at all. Is San Diego not big? Oh, gosh. See, exactly. I mean, I guess I if you include big, Tijuana yeah. in there, it gets significantly yeah. larger. But no, I mean, yeah, New York City, Chicago, LA, 
There's a number of them. I presume Houston. I knew Houston was a city, but I didn't presume it was like a massive sprawling thing. Oh boy, you better believe it. Anyway, let's go back to our modern yes, yes, ancient yes. history back, of Shang'an. Back to China. And yes, and uh, Chang'an is was basically seen as the Jin Dynasty's last safe haven because pretty much everywhere else have been either lost the barbarians or just kind of fallen with these princes fighting over everything. But rebel forces broke into the city and it fell quickly. And which rebel forces these were, I'm not too sure. And this is some really convoluted history here, Paul. And I'm just trying to explain it in a quite a succinct way as as we try and do here in AD History quite it often. It is so, so difficult to do sometimes. Yeah. So, so old and so sort of the different sources say different things. We'll just say rebel forces for now. Yeah, it's certainly not and, from a lack of trying. No, no, definitely. And these rebel forces got Shang'an and this formally ended the Western Jin dynasty in 316 AD. But luckily, there were still members of the dynasty alive, one of them being a man by the name of Sima Lu. And of course, once again, he was a member of that all-important Sima clan. And Sima Ru took some survivors and they fled south of the Yangtze River. And they arrived in the city of Kang, which is modern-day Nanjing. And it was here in 316 AD that the Jin dynasty would be reborn. And it was now dubbed the Eastern Jin dynasty, as it was east to the initial one, surprisingly. And Sima Ru once again, took on a new name. He became Emperor Zhuan of Jin. And thankfully, this Eastern Jin dynasty would last just a tad longer than that train wreck of a predecessor. It was established in 316 AD and it would last all the way until 420 AD. It, would, it wouldn't surprisingly last as long as the 16 Kingdoms period that lasted until three, uh, 439 AD, but lasted a bit longer than the Western Jin, Jin Dynasty. And I have no doubts that we'll be looking into some of the events of the Eastern Jin Dynasty as this podcast progresses. But it's great to be back in China. It's great to see a unified China, despite the first attempt at unifying it after the Three Kingdoms went a bit wrong. It's great that we have this Eastern Jin Dynasty. We don't really get things right on the first crack, more often than not. This was the case with the Jin Dynasty, but that second outing, they did a lot better with. Is that all you have for us today? That is everything. Yeah, I'm just excited to be back in China. As I said, China's a country I'm really enjoying looking into, understanding more of this history, and I hope you guys are too. The, believe me, it is so refreshing to widen our scope yet again. But us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at ADHistoryPC and the hashtag ADHistory. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash ADHistoryPodcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon, See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. Now, Paul, we're on to tonight's main event. This is the big stuff. This is the start of Constantine's conversion to Christianity. Not only changing to Christianity himself, but changing the Roman Empire to Christianity. And in turn, most of Europe to this day is still firmly Christian. It all begins and a lot of here. the world. And a huge amount of the world, of course. And it all starts here with the Battle of Milvian. So, Paul, please, you have the stage. I like the adaptation. Ah, uh, what can I say? So, the Battle of Milvian Bridge. 
was the conclusion, the set piece final engagement of a bloody civil war between Constantine and Maxenius and Maxenius's rebellion. But it has far greater implications to the history of the world when you look and you consider the even greater event that is often attributed to that day. Some of them will be sources we've heard from before, like Eusebius, but there'll also be new ones as well. And in what was the most powerful figure in Christianity since Jesus, the rule of Constantine was the greatest boost to the fortunes of Christianity since its inception. His patronage towards the church during his rule changed the nature of Christianity irrevocably. And it was said to have all begun at the famous Battle of Milvian Bridge. That Milvian Bridge, which is actually still there today, sitting on the Tiber in Rome. But what really happened at the Battle of Milvian Bridge? More accurately, what really happened to Constantine? And what is the reality of this grand historical puzzle that led to a Roman emperor embracing Christianity? And with all of that in mind, I think it is best to set the scene. It is October 312 AD, specifically the evening of the 27th of October. 312 AD. And it is said that Constantine saw a vision. He had a dream that portended to him that if you embrace this symbol and you make it your banner effectively, by this symbol you shall conquer. And that is exactly what he did the next day. But there are far greater events that go into this experience of his that are not entirely clear. And there's a whole backdrop to how he even got to this moment. And, you know, it's kind of funny, Patrick, if you look at the, the, the most well-known statue depiction of Constantine, I look at that face and he looks like a stereotypical frat boy. That is the kind of face that I have seen brag to me about their best keg stands. So interestingly enough, I think I've actually seen what you're talking about. This is the one, this is the huge statue of Yeah, him and he has a really Cap full face. Yeah, it's at the Capitola Museum in Rome, and I've been fortunate enough to actually, I more or less touched that. Yeah, I think I might have actually touched that statue, that mold of his face. No, he definitely does have a Chad of a face. Yeah, he looks like a total yeah. Chad. It's unbelievable. It's, it's so funny. For lack of a better term. No, um, yeah, he's got a very unique look to him, we'll say, put it nicely. Absolutely. But Constantine was more than just this great benefactor to Christianity that would occur once he eventually claimed power for himself. So Constantine was the son of the Caesar of the Western Empire, Constantinius, his father, who was actually extremely well-regarded. He definitely came up through the system that he was in the coterie of Aurelian, and obviously he ended up being associated in a very meaningful way with Diocletian, especially when the Tetrarchy ended up taking place. And in the case of Constantine himself, he was born in either 272 or 273, and he hailed from basically modern-day Serbia. 
It's interesting you say modern-day Serbia, and of course, our modern notion of the Slavic countries probably doesn't exist doesn't exist by now. But this must be our first quote-unquote Slavic uh, ruler, and it just shows you how far the empire's gone. It was a big deal. Diocletian was from I, Croatia. You know what? I you did a video on Split. I did. I associate Croatia so much with being a Latin, and like it's just across from the Adriatic Sea. And I know Italian was spoken. I very much because Dalmatia and Dalmatians a language I'm interested in. That's a lot of Romance speaking, but no, you're right, Diocletian as well. Regardless of my slip up just then, my bad. It just shows you how much it's changed. This idea of an emperor not being from Rome would be mad, but now it's more or less the standard. How many of them are from Rome these days? Very, very few. This is how much the empire has changed. We went all the way back and we we're talking about Trajan, and it was such a big deal that he originally hailed from Hispania, despite the fact mm. he walked in all the right social circles and he was of the right class. Mm. And now it just doesn't matter. It just no. doesn't matter. Yeah, if you if you fit the bill, go up. That doesn't matter where you come. That's kind of a good thing, I suppose. It gives you more options, I guess. It's a way to look at it, to be sure. Mm. But the hard-nosed facts about numerous points of Constantine's early life are somewhat difficult to pin down. But there are a few things we can say with some confidence, I think. Which is, during his early life, his notable father was really just not around. And that's not terribly uncommon. And once again, like I mentioned prior, Constantinius was absorbed in the coteries of Aurelian and Diocletian and all that kind of stuff. The people you wanted to be around if you wanted to end up going to the top. Certainly that's how things ended up working out. And as Constantine grew older, his time was largely spent in the court of Diocletian, especially when he started getting into his teenage years and his early 20s. And as we've mentioned prior, Diocletian very much was the Augusti in the East, though he was considered the senior Augusti of the two. And his court really nominally was basically in what they call Nicomedia in the Roman East. And as he came of age, Constantine entered military service like his father before him. He mostly served as an officer in the East, fighting notable campaigns there, as well as fighting on the Danube as well, you know, really putting the feet to the fire in terms of being a military commander, which would be very important in his later life. And come 293, when his father was appointed Caesar in the West, it was believed that Constantine, by virtue of that, was an heir apparent to his father in that position of Caesar in that case. And so during the rule of Diocletian, Constantine served as basically a junior officer and member of Diocletian's court, having direct line to the very heart of Roman power, which is exactly where he'd want to be if you are ambitious in this case. What is deeply unclear, however, given our subject, is there's no definitive way to ascertain what his attitudes were towards Christianity. This is an interesting note, little thread to leave there, because it becomes more important later. And as we mentioned in our prior episodes, the edicts pronounced by Diocletian for Christian persecution, starting in 303, were empire-wide, but they were not uniformly enforced to the same degree. Namely, matters were much, much more tame in, say, Britain or Gaul, two major portions of the empire under the rule of his Caesar father in the West at the time, which is an interesting little thing to note. And you can't help but imagine, I'm sure you, you've, probably, you've probably come to this decision yourself, but you don't want to be too Christian near Diocletian at this time. The, the, the two things don't really go well together. Like, you probably don't want to confess you're a massive Christian while you're working so closely to the man up top who isn't a big fan of Christians at the moment. So I, I, you can understand why, even if he had any Christian thoughts at the time, you can understand why Constantine wasn't sharing them. If indeed they were occurring. Yeah, if they were occurring, yeah. And we'll get to that more in a bit. But it does appear, however, that his Greek mother later on, Helena, may have been steeped in Christianity to some degree. 
at what point in time in her life and relative to Constantine's existence this exactly happened, that's not clear, but it's interesting to know. In addition to the fact, as far as Constantine's mother, and this is something that would be thrown in his face from time to time, is it's not entirely sure whether she was actually the wife of his father, Constantinus, or just some sort of consort or concubine. So something, when you start getting to issues of legitimacy in this later Roman Civil War, something that will get thrown in Constantine's face is, oh, he's just the son of a harlot. <laughs> Nasty business. Nasty yeah. business. But as far as Constantine is concerned, though he was much present during Diocletian's persecutions and his edicts that initiated them, there's no conclusive evidence regarding his attitudes towards Christian, nor as a member of Diocletian's court in terms of his complicity in carrying them out. But when Diocletian stepped down from power in 304 AD, which of course was an incredible moment that we discussed just because it didn't happen. And he was in poor health, you know, kind of makes yeah. sense, even though it was a, a practice I think many in hindsight probably thought would be have been a good idea to repeat. Mm. It was largely thought that with his father being raised to the post of Augusti in the West, that Constantine would be named Caesar as well. Because as I mentioned, he was supposed to be the heir apparent to Caesar in the West. This was supposed to be, this is his impression of how the tetriarchy would work. It would be hereditary. He, that, that's what Constantine fought anyway. It's interesting because technically it's not supposed to be, no, but saying, clearly yeah, it, it is. Yeah, he fought. He, he definitely fought, oh, I definitely will be. I mean, it's not officially hereditary, but I definitely will be the next season, definitely. Rome has sung this song before. Mm. We've heard this ballad, but this did not end up being the case. And this is one of the first main major conflicts of Constantine's life. He was passed over by the one who would ultimately succeed Diocletian, who was known as Galliarus. And he was passed over, in the case of Galliarus, for one known as Severin II, and, which is a long friend and ally of Galliarus. You know, they'd been in the military. And Maximinus, who happened to be Galliarus's nephew. And what are, under unclear circumstances, after getting passed over as Caesar, Constantine managed, apparently with the help of his father, getting out of Galliarus's court to join his father in Gaul and later Britain. And the, the reason, Patrick, this is actually rather significant is there are certain sources that suggest, because of the nature of the, the Tetrarchy and you have these various powerful rulers that are overseeing the empire, none of them trusted each other, as you could imagine. And so when Constantine is in Galliarus's court initially, especially after he gets passed over, he's kind of viewed as a hostage to his father's good behavior and fealty towards Galliarus. So the fact that he manages to get out of that court effectively puts him in far safer territory. And there's a whole story behind it, but long story short, he got out and that's really the important part. And once he's out, he ain't going back in. I can assure you that. But upon his father's death in July 306, he assumed the title of Augusti with his father's blessing on his father's deathbed. In addition to support from the troops that obviously had fought under his father's command and ultimately transferred their allegiance to the younger Constantine. But this is a problem. A serious problem. You know why? Because the senior Augusti, Galliarus was in no way involved in this decision. <laughs> and basically what happened 
is Constantine plays it off as circumstance and loyalty and my troops around me have thrust me into this position. And I was just doing a sort of research on um, Constantine and how where he was declared emperor in Britain. Because I thought, oh, that's interesting. That's my neck of the woods. And it was in a fort known as Eberacum. I don't know if you can talk about this before, but so a slight spoiler. I'm not, but it's a very large no. military complex. I think it's in northern England. Is that correct? Yeah, it ultimately became the modern day city of York, which is, of course, a very famous city in the yeah, UK. Yeah, that's, that's largely considered the, the northernmost major outpost in England, right? Uh, it's just shy of Newcastle. It's kind of Newcastle's uh, more northern. In terms of being a major city, I'm curious. I think Newcastle's more populated than York. It? York's okay. more high regarded. It's a very beloved city, York. I haven't been there myself. I'd love to go. And I've even seen there's even some statues of Constantine. There's a wonderful looking statue of Constantine yeah. in York. So he's clearly deeply associated with that part of the country. And I find that very interesting because while he was there when his father was still alive, mm. He actually did engage in campaigns north of Hadrian's Wall against wow. the Picts. Yeah, there you go. Then he's it's interesting because when I think Roman Britain, Southern Britain very much comes to mind, but to see the Roman influence so deeply in Northern England is super fascinating as well. Absolutely. It's amazing how it has endured as such. So once again, the problem was Gerlius was most certainly not involved in this decision. And, you know, what was in kind of a political shitty move, but you totally understand why he did it. Constantine sent a messenger to Galliaris that included a large portrait of Constantine in this Augusti purple. And when his messenger arrived at the court of Galliaris, Galliaris lost it. It's quite a dick move <laughs> to send a photo of stuff in robe. Sorry. No, no, it's it's a it's a total it's a total dick move, but these, they are, but it's par for the course. I mean, yeah, in, in this case, with these brand. guys, apparently, according to certain sources, Galliaris was so pissed off that he wanted to not just set fire to the portrait, but also the messenger. <laughs> literally kill the messenger. It literally kill the messenger. Goodness, and so basically. <laughs> Eventually, you know, the, the court around Galerius kind of brought him back down to earth. Okay, we don't need to, con you know, commit arson here. You're in a fait accompli. Mm. There's nothing he can do about this. And Galerius very much recognized that because he didn't want to start a civil war over this. And so basically, as opposed to, in this case, Constantine being the other Augusti, he said, okay, well, we'll make you Caesar. We'll compromise. And so we get to Gellieris, and I think it's actually really important to touch a little bit on who Gellieris was. And he's an odd figure. The thing that he's most known for, of course, is being one of the greatest promoters in terms of being a, a consul to Diocletian and promoting the Christian persecutions. He was the one that was really pushing that behind the scenes. But like I said, he served under Diocletian. He was not terribly highborn. I think he was the father of like a shepherd or a herdsman or something like that. And of course, he was also a devotee to the traditional Roman gods and ended up serving in a rather distinguished military career, you know, just like Constantinus, Constantine's father, Aurelian, Diocletian. It's interesting stuff, but even though he had a generally respected military career, in 295, in a terrible pitch battle against the Sassanids, his forces ended up getting decimated. And Diocletian not only blamed him, publicly humiliated him, which is to say that in terms of the returning procession to Nicomedia, 
he had Galliaris, who was in command of that army, walking on foot in Augusti purple, well ahead of his troops and Diocletian. And there's a very specific symbolism to this, which is that in Diocletian's eyes, Diocletian believed that this was not the fault of the troops. It was the fault of the general who led them. And to what extent that is indeed the case, who can say? Because there's always a political equation to how this ends up getting implemented, especially if you're the senior Augusti in the case of Diocletian. Mm. You certainly don't want it splashing on you. No. All the same, though, Galerius managed to regain favor and influence, obviously, so much so that by 303 AD, he was the one that was pushing the empire-wide persecutions of the Christians and those four edicts between 303 and 304 that we discussed in our prior episode. And moreover, Galerius was seemingly a political rival and even perhaps an outright enemy based on what we've discussed so far of Constantine's father, Constantinius. On top of that, the people around him were actually not that big on him. They, they thought he was a little barbaric for their tastes. Bit of an animal, if you will. Mm. But now that we understand who he is, let's take a look at how this plays out for Constantine once he is in power, once he's forced this fait accompli on Galliaris, who I'm sure at this point was most certainly dreading that he ever agreed to let him go off, in the case yeah. of Constantine, with his father. Apparently it happened while Galliaris was drinking, but there's no way to verify that he allowed this to happen after a long way of drinking. But it's an interesting little thing to note, yeah. right? So in the case of Constantine and his early rule as Caesar, in this case, including Britain, Gaul, and I believe Hispania as well, he was in a position where he felt very much the need to create a legitimacy for himself. Because even though he was a good son and loyal son to his father, his father was apparently very popular, popular with his troops, popular with the people in the territories under his rule. And so in coming into office like this originally, Constantine very much tried to identify with his father, that more revered figure that can provide that legitimacy. And the other thing he did, though, was far more constructive, all pun intended, as you'll see in a moment. He also undertook a lot of building in places like Rome and Gaul. Roads, both in the case of upkeep and new roads, and he spent a great deal of time, energy, and resources improving the military infrastructure of those provinces and territories that were under his rule. And this is something that once that began happening and the results of those initiatives began bearing out, he started becoming more popular and seen as legitimate in his own right. And there's some very like populist tactics, aren't they? Make the roads, make the roads and buildings better, and help fund the army. They're two things that are very, two very easy things to do that will get you in the good books of a lot of people. And it's just interesting to see him go straight in with those tactics so early on. Like it's always a thing in politics: how can you make the trains run on time? Obviously, Rome didn't have trains, but making the roads as good as possible was basically the same as that. And who doesn't love having the military funded? That's always a popular tactic. It's just, just interesting to see Constantine running these classic tactics so far back in history. I love the historical significance of that term, obviously, is most widely applied to Mussolini. And in fact, yeah. he was very much, when the time came, 
making the trains run on time. We'll mm. talk about that particular little bit there at some point in the future, because I actually rather like it. It's very funny. Yeah. But yeah, it's true. And in fact, politically, especially when you're on a more local level, you know, they say all politics are local, right? Well, the fact of the matter is some politics are more local than others. And something you'll notice, one of the major incumbent advantages for like, say, a mayor or in your case, Lord Mayor, if you will, mm. is that when you start getting closer to election day, you'll notice that there is a fair amount of construction on the roads. Interesting stuff. Mm, Incumbent yeah. advantage that you can say, oh, look what I'm yeah. doing so close yeah. to election day. You know, cast your ballot yeah. for me. Just a oh, little yeah, fun note. Done. No, it's interesting. Yeah. But the other thing that he did that obviously made him very, very popular is that he was very successful at fighting these Germanic tribes over the Rhine, which, of course, the Rhine is right there with his territory because one of his territories is Gaul. And he had some really major victories over the Franks and the Alamanni. In fact, I think he may have gotten both of their kings captured in battle. And then when he was returning in his victorious procession, I believe in the amphitheater, I think they may well have executed both of them by basically pitting them in the arena against some particularly vicious wild animals. That'll do it. <laughs> I would say so. I would say that's a bit more of a dick move than yeah. for forcing the fate accompli in terms of Constantine's position as Caesar, or rather yeah. Augusti at that point, but compromise Caesar. But at this point, though, we get to a rather important set of events with two people that are father and son, though, God, they really don't act like it, at least not in any way that would be constructive in our day and age. And that is Maximian and Maxentius. On 28 October 308 AD, and you'll notice this is a recurring date, at least in terms of 28 October, proclaimed himself as emperor. These are guys that were close to Diocletian, the whole thing. They're all kind of coming from the same general brain trust. But when Maxentius proclaimed himself emperor, Galliarus did not recognize it, but he couldn't do anything about it at the time. But in an attempt for Galliarus to stop Maxentius, he sent the aforementioned Severus II that ended up getting leapfrogging Constantine when Constantine was not honored as the heir apparent to Caesar when his father moved up to basically go and engage Maxentius in battle. However, Severus's army decided to defect to Maxentius because the army under Severus had fought under Maxentius's father, Maximian. They ended up imprisoning Severus, and I'm sure you can imagine he did not meet a particularly wonderful fate from that point on. No, no, I can't quite imagine. This particular set of events, interestingly enough, caused his father Maximian to return from effective retirement. And in doing so, he obviously needed political and military support. So one of the first major stops he made in order to achieve that was the court of Constantine. And in the case of Constantine, it was kind of a nominal, I wouldn't say it's tacit, but really just words, support for what Maximian was doing. But he didn't give him anything further. He never gave him forces to help further his campaign. In fact, in this struggle, Constantine actively made as much distance between himself and what was happening in this conflict with Maximian and Maxentius against Galliarus. And it was an interesting political move, Patrick, and this is why. For a few things, one is he actually received tremendous credit for keeping out of the conflict, especially from his own people, especially considering what he was doing instead. 
which of course is once again defending the Rhine border, which mm. is exactly what everybody wants because who wants Germanic tribes, you know, basically pillaging through your farm every five weeks, in addition to focusing on other elements of the territories he's in. He really made himself very publicly visible, which most good politicians generally do. And so this gave him a lot of gravitas and credit and really kind of set him above the conflict that I'm not getting involved in this. I have more important things to think about. And he made sure that his people fully understood and got that message from him because he would tour all over the place. In mm -hmm. addition to doing things like patroning arts and entertainment and all sorts of cultural things that are really important. Though this is where things get interesting in this relationship with Fire Father and Son. Maximian the father ended up falling out with his son Maxentius after actually trying to usurp the title of his son from Maxentius, interestingly enough. And he retreated once again to the seat of power of Constantine. But Galliaris at this point was becoming less and less militant in certain ways because as he was getting older, he was actually growing ill. I believe he ends up dying from like a really terrible bowel cancer. Hmm. Yeah. So he decides to take the olive branch approach here. And he basically calls together a summit in November of 208. And in doing so, Maximian was forced to formally abdicate all of his titles. Licinius, who's once again another old military buddy and political ally to Galliaris, we've heard this story before so far, was made Augusti of the Western provinces. And at this point, for the most part, as far as I understand it, Constantine, though I'm not 100% clear on this, at the very least, though, I think he was technically Caesar, he was more or less operating as an Augusti, really. <laughs> he ends up getting formally demoted to Caesar in this. And Constantine, as far as I know, is not present for this particular summit. Constantine basically flipped on the bird and said, absolutely no way, we're not doing this. And with that, he continued to stylize himself and refer to himself and present himself as an Augusti. And this created a very awkward situation. Yeah, you've got to wonder how much better Tetrarchy would have stood a chance of if just Constantine had just come in and ruin it all. I, I mean, there are so many people that are complicit in that. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. But it's just interesting to see, and we talked about this when we talked about Diocletian, we said that the Tetrarchy fell, crumbled pretty quickly after him, and now we're just seeing it in action. Absolutely, and it's unfortunate mm. that that was the case, but so went the history, so went the events. But in Maximian retreating once again to the court of Constantine, he pulls a really dirty move, a very, very foul move, which is while Constantine, this was in 310, while Constantine was on campaign against the Franks, Maximian betrayed Constantine while he was leading a contingent of Constantine's troops in the south of Gaul, whose mission, might I add, was to prepare for a potential invasion by his son Maxentius. And when he goes off and does this, he spreads the lie that Constantine has died. Yeah. Yeah. Not fair. cool. No. Not no. cool. And on top of that, he also offers like a very generous benefit package to anybody in the military who wants to join him. No dice. Mm -hmm. No dice. The army of Constantine remained loyal to Constantine. And no doubt, they very much backed the right horse in that case. And 
this is where ultimately things get even more interesting because this particular usurpation does not get very far. In fact, in the case of Maximine, he ends up getting captured by Constantine's troops. He's brought into captivity and he's coerced to commit suicide. Mm. I suppose it's better than being fed to a brutal animal, yeah. but who's to say? He's fed to the lions. Apparently yeah. he hung himself. And also in 310 AD, Galerius, once again, who is extremely ill, like I said, I believe this is due to bowel cancer, does two things of interest. One is he passed an edict of religious tolerance that formally ended all of the religious persecutions that had happened earlier in the decade under Diocletian. And this is particularly interesting because Galerius was such a proponent of it in the court of Diocletian. And then, of course, the other thing he does is he dies. Goddamn dies. So naturally, Galliaris is out of the way. And Maxentius, whose father is obviously now hanging from a rope, basically starts readying himself both politically and militarily and getting ready for war against Constantine because all the contenders are coming together. And he overtakes Licinius, who obviously we mentioned prior, and kind of gets him more or less reluctantly on board. But by this point, Maxentius had an issue, which is almost as soon as he took over, he became wildly unpopular due to a number of policies, a lot of it having to do with taxation and various other things. And people were just done with this guy. We're sick of this troublemaker. And on top of that, life is certainly not better under him. There's that much certain. And his popularity withered. And of course, this is an incredible benefit to Constantine, to be sure. And so when Constantine eventually decided to engage in open conflict with the forces of Maxentius, he actually did it against the advice of his personal coterie. And using only a quarter of his troops, he began his march down into the Italian peninsula. He was a very good tactician, wasn't he, Constantine? He knew what to do when, and he knew when not to do anything. He knew when to just stay out of it, and that would make him look good. He knew how to press the right buttons. It's interesting. So he's both a good strategist mm. and a good tactician. Mm. And specifically in terms of political strategy, in some ways, to me at least, thinking back, it kind of reminds me of the political genius of Augustus. Mm. The Augustus, son of Julius Caesar, Octavian, mm. as he's also known, even though in the case of Constantine, he's far, far more steeped and successful as a military commander. Augustus was never that. Mm. Augustus was a master of politics. And to some degree, you, you, it's hard to deny that in the case of Constantine, he's he's both. He's very good militarily and he knows how to play politics. And that's going to help him out. And so he begins this campaign into northern Italy, where he wins a string of major engagements against the forces of Maxentius, and where the people in the areas that he ends up marching through end up throwing their gates open to him and basically throw the forces of Maxentius out to the curb, send them out into the cold. This is not a good, good situation for Maxentius. He's very much on the back foot. And this is where we get to the Damascene moment of Constantine, the Battle of Milvian Bridge on October 28th, 312 AD. Like I said, that October 28th, it just keeps popping back up. Yeah. And on the river Tiber in Rome, obviously, sits the Milvian Bridge. 
and it is at the Milvian Bridge that Constantine's emergence into Christianity is often credited, certainly by Eusebius, to be sure. On 28 October 312, it was a pitch battle between the forces of the basically dueling emperors Constantine and Maxentius. This battle would be a major victory for Constantine and his forces and be the major stepping stone to his dismantling the Tetrarchy of Diocletian that we talk so much about. At this point, we get to the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. We get all this background now, right? All the hmm. stuff that's going on. So where does Christianity come into all of this? It almost seems like when you have all of that backdrop, especially at the time, that to some extent, though obviously to greater future events in the history that's recorded of them, this is the far more important thing of the two. This is the moment that's often credited. So what happened to Constantine at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge in regards to Christianity? Well, let's take a look, shall we? The historian Eusebius, which is Constantine's biographer, and Laxentius, who's also a personal counsel to Constantine, but also wrote a history as well. In their histories of the engagement, they make mention of a dream that apparently Constantine had the night before the battle, also referred to in a vision, in which Constantine benefited from divine revelation. And in Laxentius's account, Constantine was told to basically delineate the heavenly signs on the shields of his sword. And at the time, this particular symbol was known as the Cairo, which is a popular cryptogram employed by many Christians at the time as a cryptogram depicting Christ. And something I will definitely put in here, because it's definitely worth taking a look at, mm. if you guys are at all savvy or interested in YouTube, Andrew over at Religion for Breakfast does an exceptional recap of what these events are from an excellent academic perspective. So I would very much encourage anybody to go and take a look at his video on the subject. But according to Eusebius, basically around high noon, Constantine saw, quote, a cross-shaped trophy formed from light resting above the sun, where basically he was given the message by this symbol, conquer. So what's really going on here? Well, that's where we get into more of the interesting theological implications here. So in the case of Constantine, he, had, he claimed to have visions his entire life. This was not something that was new for him, and nor was religion new for him. But what religion we're talking about is obviously very much at play here. And in 310, he actually claimed first, this is the first vision that apparently came about, is that he was visited by Apollo and sees himself as Apollo. But, and this is something really, really important to mention here, Constantine was also an dedicated devotee to the cult of Sol Invictus, who was considered a sun god. We've talked about Sol Invictus before. Did a, a section I did, I think, covered him where he was introduced. I can't remember where exactly, though. There are two places. First off, in terms of the cult of Sol Invictus, the first major player who tried to make it a thing was actually Elagabalus. That's where it came from, good old Elagabalus. It obviously didn't take hold, but no. several decades later, where it did start becoming fashionable and fall in vogue, was under Aurelian. That's where it really kind of begins to stick, as it were. Yeah. And this is not a huge surprise, because in the case of Apollo, Apollo is always very much associated with the sun, which makes sense. On top of that, as far as this particular vision is concerned, 
in addition to any personal divine revelations or inspiration in the case of Constantine, he also used it to further his legitimacy as well, especially when you're entering the point of the major civil war, because he wanted to have that direct connection. And there are a ton of coins that he minted back to coinage again yeah, that is showing coinage. him as a companion to Sol Invictus. Then, of course, you have what's going on at the Milvian Bridge, both what happened the night before and what he claims to have apparently seen in the sky. But what was he really seeing? What was really going on here? So Sol Invictus, as we kind of briefly mentioned, was a cult of Roman paganism first fashioned initially by Elagabalus and ended up getting picked up later by Aurelian. And Constantine, of course, is this devotee of him in this early life. And it's entirely possible that this vision that he had in 310, like I said, he was seeing Apollo and Sol Invictus almost as the same person. And his association was extremely well documented, as we mentioned. This may have also been the case with his vision in 312 at the Milvian Bridge and the night before. The aforementioned histories that were written there afterwards, actually, in the case of Laxentius, was he wrote his history about all of this that's going on in the battle only three years after it happened. And he was very close to Constantine. And in the case of Eusebius and his history of what's going on there as the official biographer of Constantine is actually writing it more than three decades later. The thing that's interesting is that Eusebius actually has two different accounts written at two different times, one that comes earlier and one that's later one. And they don't always harmonize, but the one that's most interesting to most scholars is the one that's given in 339 because he claims, and this is definitely quite possible, that the story actually came to him directly from Constantine. Because as Constantine later in his rule as embracing Christianity, somebody like Eusebius, who is the bishop of Caesarea, is obviously going to have a great more contact and intimacy with power than you can possibly imagine. And he talks in great detail about the vision that he had the night before. And so there's this question of one vision versus two visions. Was it just the vision that he had at the battle, or was it both the vision from the night before and the vision that he had during that day? And he kind of, they kind of clump that into one in some respects, and then the vision he had in 310 AD with Apollo at Sol Invictus. So there's the one vision idea by certain historians that there are three main sources that, that talk about the one vision in the case of Diocletian 310. There's a Latin panegyric. Laxentius talks about it, and Eusebius are all reporting the same event, but they think it's kind of coming all from different perspectives. And it's all around the vision of around Apollo and Sol Invictus in 310. And years later, Laxentius incorrectly states that the vision occurred in 312. So you see where there's starting to become this disconnect here that yeah. starts becoming problematic and not 310. And then Eusebius, in his history that he's writing 30 years later, in his direct account from Constantine, Constantine well into his conversion of Christianity, claims the vision came from the Christian God himself and not Sol Invictus in 312. He would. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of reasons for this. But then yeah. there's, of course, the, the, the two-vision conception here, right? Where in 312, Constantine became a dedicated devotee of the sun god Apollo Invictus based on what we had discussed earlier. And this information, I believe, actually comes out of Bart Ehrman's history of the triumph of Christianity, which is a very, very fine scholarly look at the history of the early church, especially as it relates to Roman power. And we talked about him a great deal 
in our actually rather popular episode, Who Wrote the Gospels? Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting stuff. He keeps coming back. He keeps coming back, but for good reason. Yeah. So he basically thinks what happened in 312 regarding Apollo Sol Invictus happened, and that in 312, after years of being kind of like steeped in Christianity from people that were associated with him in his personal coterie and perhaps any sort of personal initiative that he took due to his interest in Christianity may have been occurring at that time. And that indeed there two visions occurred. It's interesting. And basically after that time, he came to the conclusion, especially in 312, that the sun god or Sol Invictus was also the god of Jesus and Christianity. We'll get to why this is actually possible, as strange as it all may sound, because mm. we look at Christianity today, and despite the fact that you know there are many different sects of Christianity all over the world, that's its own thing. There are a lot of contentious and not universally accepted tenets in Christianity at this time. It's not really formalized. Today, it seems a lot more formalized than it did back then in many respects. Mm. That's generally the idea that had possibly occurred there. Whichever one you find more appealing between the two is entirely up to you, but they both make interesting points, right? Once Constantine eventually gained full power, he became the sole emperor. His favoritism and being a benefactor to Christianity went into overdrive. He ended up signing what basically was called an additional form of a declaration of tolerance that's included in the Edict of Milan. It not only legalized Christianity, but it doesn't stop there. It also goes ahead and makes it so officially the Christians that had property seized from them during Diocletian's persecutions that it was returned to them. And on top of that, we get to some other really serious pro-Christian policies at that point, where he's really heavily favoring the church, in addition to building a whole bunch of them, giving them access to the Roman post system, which basically is like being able to trade off horses along the lines, kind of ancient form of communication, and it's done on the bill of the state. He does something, actually, that still happens today. Certainly in my country, it might be true in yours as well, Patrick. Mm. He actually gave the church tax-exempt status. Huh. I think that might be the case here in the UK as well. It sounds, it's something I've definitely heard before. Maybe that's from the US side of things. It's definitely the case here when it comes to recognized religious institutions in terms of in terms of their status, in terms of regards to tax. And something I'm curious in, uh, popes have been about for quite some time up until this point. What became of like, did that all of a sudden become a much more important title to have? I wonder if there's any like, do you by chance know who was the pope at the time during this period and how much they sort of rose in stock? So at this point, now that the church can operate much more openly, popes obviously will be able to get to wield a bit more power. But that really wasn't the issue at play here that was so important, oddly enough, when it came to Christianity and it being favored. And that's something that we're actually going to cover in our next episode, which of course is the Council of Nicaea. He had that particular council called because there were all these different sects and portions of Christianity, and none of them could agree on the theological nature of Jesus. Was he divine? Not only was he divine, was he divine in a way that makes him equal to God? Is he God himself? This is something we're going to touch on in the next episode. But one thing I can definitely say to you right now is this, Patrick. Popes are going to get a lot more powerful. Yeah, that's why I imagine Pope. This is going to be like, it's a good time to be a Pope. (laughs) You bet your ass. But this really creates kind of a complicated and muddy picture. Because 
Constantine is still a Roman emperor, and there's still a large contingent of the Roman population that basically are devotees of the traditional Roman pagan Greco-Roman gods. And we were talking in our last episode, you were asking, what, what was it about Christianity that, that was almost so incompatible with Rome, if I remember correctly? Yeah, I just sort of said how, like, despite the fact that Rome genuinely let people do their thing in the empire, as long as you pay your taxes, they just never really could seem to get on board with Christianity as well as Judaism, of course. And the, the hypothesis I came to is because it was made within the empire. Maybe they didn't like the fact that it came from within as opposed to being something they took on board from expansion. It's kind of an ironic point here. And I think you'll understand why in a moment, because I started thinking more about this after, after we recorded that episode. Mm. When it came to the Romans and Rogan, Roman paganism, they had this kind of interesting cultural twist on things where they would kind of hybridize or graft the god of whatever religion that was not the Roman pagan gods and kind of like merge them in with their own. And in the case of Christianity, most Christians just weren't having it. Yeah. There, there, there was such an obstinance to this. Yeah. And that created a big problem because, at least in the Romans' eyes, the way they would have saw it most likely at the time is, well, we're playing ball, why can't you? And something that's on this kind of a bit of a tangent, it's, it's, it's crazy that pagan religion came before monotheism. You'd think people would more likely jump to one being who does everything as opposed to, I mean, the oldest... I think the oldest still going religion is Hinduism. I think the oldest still popular religion is Hinduism. I think you're Hinduism. right. I, I do think you're right. A, yeah, that's got multiple gods. Ancient Egypt, multiple gods. It's it, it's interesting. That's that's where people first went to. People first came to the decision that there would be multiple gods doing different things. It took thousands upon thousands of years for Judaism to first appear. I think Judaism was the first of the single god religions, at least one still popular today. There, there was definitely a formation that kind of came in Judaism mm. regarding its origins and, and gods of that nature. And our, and our old friend, Max Arano, actually, I think, does a, a few videos on that that are very, very mm. interesting. If you go over there on YouTube and sure, take a look Sam. at our old friend. Yeah, yeah. I gotta, we got to reach out to Sam at some point because there's some fun yeah. stuff coming up here that would be right in yeah. his ballpark. But that aside, the other thing is also that Christianity, in many respects, was really kind of incompatible to a lot of aspects of Roman life. But you can also understand why it would have gained popularity. And this is something that Constantine has to deal with. So let me answer all of this in like one bundled thing here, mm. okay? Because it all, it all relates. In the case of Constantine, we know his pro-Christian policies, especially when he's firmly in power. But he's still releasing coins with him and Sol Invictus. He's still building statues to Sol Invictus. He's still allowing pagan temples to be built. He'll still make outward sacrifices to the pagan gods, but he's still Christian. <laughs> this is interesting because this kind of plays into that Roman attitude of kind of hybridizing on a theological respect between the non-Roman pagan religions and the ones that we know so well from Rome. And there's a couple of reasons. One is obviously the cultural aspect of it, that it's something that was done. And two, and this is really the important part. The biggest part of the Roman Empire that Christianity, especially as it was conceived of at that time that was so incompatible, was with the Roman military. Think about it. Early Christianity, in many of its various iterations, took very seriously the pacifism that was taught by Jesus. Yeah. That's going to be a problem for a Roman military, is it not? 
yeah, like Mars isn't going to be on board with being pacifist. No, and Mars is going to start going away, might I add. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, that, that, that too as well. Mars is not going to be in much of the Roman military for much longer. Even today, like, they clearly, Christianity clearly got past that as religion does play quite a large role in modern military. I know that God is quite a big feature in the US military, that sort of thing, especially in the US in general. That might be a bit of an assumption there, but like, we're doing it for God, that sort of thing. You hear that a lot, especially, you know, the... Um, that may be true on a personal level. That is per- not yes, true on an official person. policy okay. level. There's a but, definite separation of church yeah. and state going on there. O- over here, however, a lot of the um, army is for queen and country, and the queen is the head of the uh, Church of England as well. So sure there's a is. bit more of a link there. And, of course, you've got the likes of the... What's the word I'm looking for? The Crusades, which is literally battling for religious reasons, waging war to spread Christianity. Indeed. So naturally, the conception of pacifism kind of goes by (laughs) the wayside, to be sure. So if you're Constantine, and as we know, the Roman military is basically what gives all of these Roman emperors power and allows them to Mm. remain in power and legitimate. So you have to kind of play both sides of the equation. He may be Christian. But he is certainly going to not alienate his freaking military, his whole base of power, by theologically going against something that they're just not buying. And it once again goes back to that whole thing I mentioned earlier of him just being a damn good tactician. Tactician and strategist. And strategist, yes. But on top of that, he's also putting out more Christian symbols. You know, there's a coin out there where he's wearing a crown that also has that Cairo symbol that we mentioned. It's a very strange thing. So we know all about his pro-Christian policies and all that meant, and, and, and how his rule was the incredible springboard that allowed this, ultimately, this religion to go and spread to the masses. In addition to the fact it has one other really important quality that in many respects, a lot of the Roman pagan religion, as far as I know, doesn't really speak to. And that, of course, is an afterlife and a promise of one. Because remember, all the way back in episode one, we talk about Jesus and thinking not so much about this world, but the next. And so you can understand, despite the fact that it has a, a very poor connotation, that it was all, Christianity was often dismissed by the Romans as being a religion of slaves and women. But oddly enough, as we saw it play out, and now on the biggest level with the most powerful benefactor that Christianity had experienced up to that point, It very well suited the masses as well as the elite of society. So while Constantine is very much stricken with many contradictions, he becomes very, very much involved in all sorts of matters regarding Christianity. And like I said, next time we're going to talk about the Council of Nicaea in more depth because he's very much involved in that. You can very clearly see a very Roman religious archetype in terms of how he's understanding Christianity in addition to playing the role he knows he needs to play politically, so not to alienate all the other power brokers and especially the military. It's very, very interesting times just to see Rome changing on such a drastic scale. And like, it's just interesting to see it wasn't such a blanket change. We all have this concept of Constantine made the Roman Empire Christian, but yeah, clearly wasn't. it feels almost like, okay, we're Christian now, but that clearly wasn't the case. It was a slow burn. And I'm interested to see how this slow burn continues. And even as, with um, Constantine himself. Yes, even with Constantine himself. Yeah, like he was still worshipping Sol Invictus. And it wouldn't be 
the concept of Sol Invictus started to merge more with God slash Jesus himself. And it's all just coming from there. It's going to be interesting because the history book so often depicted, I said, just being, okay, we're Christian now, that's cool. But that just wasn't the case. And thank you for sharing that with us, Paul. It was very interesting to hear this was a slow build. And that's what AD history is all about, slow builds, understanding things on a micro scale. It's absolutely true. And I'll I'll leave us on this thought because Mm. I think it very much speaks to a, a greater idea that very much... I don't remember who originally said the quote, but it is said that any great figure in history is given one sentence. And the one sentence in the case of Constantine was, he made the Roman Empire Christian. And unfortunately, with the brevity of that one statement, it does not at all allow for the true reality of the situation, how it unfolded and why, to really come to light here. But I like to think you listening to us, wherever you may be listening to us, has a slightly deeper insight beyond that simple one sentence for Constantine. And with that, us here, you there, and we'll be back right after a word from AD. This is the AD History Podcast. Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT and of course on YouTube search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at History, as well as my reader-submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II-related questions, which if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye, thank you, and take care. Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash ADHistoryPodcast and Instagram as AD History Podcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick... Thank you for listening to the AD History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.